Hello, welcome to Lambda Forms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the singer and songwriter in the band Lambda Forms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today I am joined by photographer and videographer Richard Chin, who also happened to be the director on my latest music video for the song Hypothermia. Richard and I go way back. He used to photograph uh, some of my bands in high school and in college when I would come back to the city, and has long been a documenter of the New York DIY scene in his photography and videography. Uh, I was, I've always viewed Richard as somewhat of a mentor figure in a lot of ways. He's sort of been, you know, a bit, a generation removed from me and my friends, but has always had the best of intentions guiding us along our path as creatives in this city. And so I was delighted to have him on to talk about the process of making this music video together, uh, his reflections on the changes in the New York DIY scene over the last decade and a half, and his recent switch to doing nature photography instead of photographing live bands in dingy Brooklyn bars. Thank you for listening. The, the video itself, I think, in lieu of any sort of larger questions from the, from the publishing entity or the, or the releasing entity, um, I think the, the, the idea of doing a music video sort of speaks for itself, right? Like the idea of doing um, a music video to work in tandem with a song is promotion for either an album or an artist or you know, just the song itself is sort of accepted, an accepted activity on the part of musicians and people who make videos to just sort of exist together at this point. You know, the medium, the medium is 50, 60 years old at least. And, and more specifically, the MTV version of this is, you know, 40 years old at this point. So um, I think to sort of, it, it feels weird uh, to sort of have to either put out an artist statement or to sort of justify a music video's existence, right? Totally, yeah. I I think that that's definitely a mindset that I I appreciate. I I always struggle with that exact kind of dissonance of like, part of me gets like what, the process of making something is often so exciting that I want to tell everyone about it. Mm-hmm. even after showing it to them um, because it's just something that I, I really enjoy doing. And so I like talking about things that I enjoy, but at the same time, I also feel like over explaining is a sin of its own, you know, and maybe one that I was particularly prone to in earlier parts of my creative life. So leaving something like this music video or a particular song to just kind of speak for itself also has its, has its appeal to me. Yeah, I think I think that's sort of the the way I'm feeling these days too. And I think some of that comes from having been burned way back when, when the scene was still going real hot with uh, like style jackers, shall we say, um, mm. and sort of the explanation of technique or of thought process or sort of like the American cinematographer, like DP interview kind of thing 
is sort of tedious if you're not interested in sort of the nuts and bolts of how something gets made in the first place. I feel like if you're, if you're somebody who is interested in making an artistic piece in any medium, then you're sort of searching for ways to solve the particular artistic problem at hand, whether it's, you know, how do I get this guitar tone or, or, you know, how do I make a, a shot in a film or video look the way it does. And then many of these things can sort of be sourced in a way that doesn't have to be discussed in relation to a specific piece of art. Mm, yeah. And they're like, how do I make my guitar sound like name a fucking guitar player? How do, how do I, how do I make a guitar tone sound like Les Paul? Well, there's, there's all sorts of stuff on sort of the raw nuts and bolts of how to do something like that without having to talk to Les Paul himself about who's of course dead, but like how, so I'm going to talk to Les Paul about how he, how he sort of arrived at this particular conclusion. Right. And there's also, I think a, uh, a problem of getting caught up on the how and ignoring the why. Yeah. You know, like in thinking of like, I noticed this a lot, especially in the metal world and especially as I was growing up and was kind of interfacing more with the gear side of the musical universe that there seemed to be this kind of perpetual quest to be like, well, if I just get all of the gear that this person uses, then by the end of it, I'll sound like them. And I think it's more often than not, I've learned that it's, it's more about how do you like, why does this person make all these decisions? Like what's the end goal that they're going towards? And if I clarify my own reasons for why I'm trying to chase that sound, I'll probably get closer to it than by simply buying the gear. You know what I right. mean? Right. A lot of things that, with, you know, with regards to this particular music video and with regards to making things in general, a lot of, a lot of the conclusions or a lot of the end result is just the result of problem solving in the moment anyway. Absolutely. Like I don't, I don't have, I don't have the gear or I don't have the time or I don't have the bodies or I don't have the money, which is usually the case. Right. Mm-hmm. So then in lieu of having any and all of those things or infinite resources, how do I arrive at a conclusion that, or a piece rather that is satisfying to me as the maker of the thing. And, um, that's sort of the, the fun of it. Mm -hmm. Totally. I remember when we had a conversation a while back about the like crowdfunding thing, which I see is sort of related to this where, Oh yeah. Way back when I think that there's something, People, again, uh, assume that if you just get all of the, if you sort of break down all of those barriers that you described, all of those sort of limitations, then you'll just smoothly transfer into the work that you want to make. Whereas I think to your point, more often than not, creatively getting around those barriers will actually result in a more interesting product if you take your job seriously enough. Yeah. And there's a certain amount of skill that goes into all that, of course, but I, I, that's true. And the, you know, these, these platforms like GoFundMe or Kickstarter or what have you to a certain degree. And I've said this, I've said this to you before, like it's just poor people shuttling money back and forth. Like the artistic world has always been one of patronage and it's just, what if you have a bunch of micro patient, micro micro patrons instead of the church mm-hmm. or a king or or what have you or even the national endowment of the arts like to a no no less evil kind of gatekeeper 
and I think that there's a place for those things. And I actually don't really know where I'm going with this at this point, but, but <laughs> um, I think it just has some, some, my notion sort of has something to do with the idea of people needing to profit off their art in order to survive or at least break even in order to continue to make art in the first place, which sucks. And it's perhaps not a very fun conversation to have for a podcast. I mean, that's a lot of the conversations I've been having over the last year, which is the year that I've been doing the podcast will occasionally by technical necessity edge into not fun territory. So I'm not afraid of going okay. into the not fun zone if need be. Uh, yeah, well, it's extremely not fun to talk about money in relation to art. And, you know, I think about my friends, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty lucky and you're pretty lucky too, but I'm pretty lucky in that I have a means of income that allows me to exist in, in my artistic medium, but is not so tied to my medium that I feel like I'm just sort of living in one tiny little world. Like I, I, you know, working professionally in film and television for money means that I get to work in a skill set that is familiar and comfortable and sort of not easy or effortless, but has, has an ease and an effortlessness about it at this point in my career. And then I can take those skills and I can channel it toward art that I like making, which is, which is music videos. I like doing it and photography in particular, which everybody knows me for in the first place. And that's how I got to know you uh, and all of our, all of our friends. And I, mm. you know, it's, it's allowed me to make a lot of great, great, great friends and meet a lot of really interesting people and go a lot of interesting places uh, and have a lot of great memories. So you mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation, the, the problem of style jackers. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of dovetails pretty neatly into talking about your show photography. Cause that's what I assume that you're talking about is people ripping off the particular way that you would shoot bands live. Right. Is that right? That, that's, that's my, that's a gist of it. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, I was also, I was thinking about, you know, the fact that you've, carved out this career that is in the same world, but is not the same world as maybe, you know, how we came to know each other. Was there ever a moment where you thought about going like full pro with just band photography? Yeah. I think when I first started out, I think that's always what, what you do when you first start out is you're just like, Oh, this is, this is interesting to me. And I really enjoy doing it. And what if, mm -hmm. you know, what if I could do it for money? But then one of the things that happens is you, you, you do something for money enough and you either keep enjoying it or it becomes a job and you become tied to the income that comes from that money. And that from that you lose a great deal of autonomy uh, because it's only the rare groups of people that are allowed to sort of do their own art completely in a vacuum or in so much of a vacuum that they can really just command, like command others to act in, in service of a result you know, think about artists, musicians in particular, who are like, who have sort of a blank check, like Bjork is sort of one off mm -hmm. the top of my head, right? She, she exists in an, in an artistic world that is very specific. She clearly has many, many collaborator, collaborators and many people who want to work with her. But the end result is always like the capital B Bjork at the top of the, at the top of the pyramid. And everything is done in service of her particular vision, mm -hmm. um, whether it is her anointing people who have a very specific skill set, like the people who do the throat singing, or you know her costume designers and and things like that, 
uh, and granted, all these people are obviously very skilled and and accomplished in their own rights. So, so that's the the rarefied portion of it. And what if what interests me as an artist is like I don't want to have to go through all that frou-frou in order to get to that point. And instead, I would rather work very small and with a group of people that I admire and in a, in a, in a setting that I enjoy, which, you know, just throw a name out there, Shea Stadium, silent, you know, both silent barns, um, death by audio, all these favorite places and just meet the people and live in this world that is very particular to me and that I can show in its best light also. Mm -hmm. Um, so that meant that, you know, do I want to shoot you two at Madison Square Garden? I sure as shit don't. You know, and I don't want to. I don't want to shoot for an entity that would hire me to do that particular job because I just don't think I do a very good job because I don't care. Mm -hmm. um, and I realized that as you know, I've known you and our friends since you were teenagers, and I've watched you all grow up and become very like happy people, like even during this last year, like become very happy and contented and sort of thoughtful about art in a way that was not just like being young and stupid and, and gung-ho punk rock and becoming able to articulate what it is you're trying to make. And that like makes me want to work with you and, and bring that part of your experience into photography, mm -hmm. which is my part of it. So and I, and I think I, I gave up, to answer your question, I think I gave up on trying to go like pro, pro, real, real fast. Because it's just a, the, the nuts and bolts of that is really no fun. Mm -hmm. And instead, what I have is like this archive that is that exists and is growing. You know, it'll be there when I'm dead, presumably. Assuming there's an electrical grid because it's all digital now. So, so, so what are you going to do? So let's maybe scroll back a bit just for those who may not know exactly the full story. When did you start photographing live music and why did you start doing it? Um, I started doing it when I was, I started doing live music in particular when I was in college because like, you know, Japanther was the house band uh, and, you know, you just shoot the same DIY basement shows and street shows. They were doing all sorts of weird shit at that point. Like, uh, tapping into the power lines in street lamps and doing just like street shows mm -hmm. to shut down an intersection in Dumbo and do a street show or Bed-Stuy at that point, or, you know, Williamsburg back when it was the wild, wild west and all that stuff. And I just sort of carried through with it. I never really, I didn't really get into or comprehend sort of the larger New York music world until, until I graduated. Mm -hmm. And by that point you could kind of argue that it was, like the, the first wave of that was already sort of cresting and I just sort of stuck with it and it was just something that I did and it became a way for me to synthesize or synthesize being at live shows that I understood because like dancing is not my thing and just sort of sitting around bobbing my head is not my thing and uh, just going to be social and be seen in a scene is certainly not my thing. You can, you can attest to this that like when I go to shoot a show, I just sort of sit in the front and I don't go hang out and really talk to people. If people come talk to me, that's very cool. But I'm not going to go like socialize and then come back and say, ah, now it's my time. And, and now I'm just going to take my spot back. And then, yeah, so it just, it just, I started doing it in college and I just sort of stuck with it. And I guess I didn't really 
figure out what I wanted to do and what I wanted my photographic experience to reflect until, you know, New York, New York DIY second wave, which is, you know, 2006 or so. Do you recall like a particular show or a particular uh, set of bands that you really started honing your style in for? No, but I was really just shooting bar stuff. I was shooting like bar shows mm -hmm. um, for my art school friends' bands. And yeah, but like back in, back in like 2006, 2007, uh, Tommy's Tavern was not the, was not necessarily the uh, questionable place that it is now. Um, and they were, they were doing just like punk shows in the back, real, real stupid stuff. Like there's no backline, there's no PA or, sharing equipment and doing all this stuff and the bands are varying degrees of quality and then i guess yeah 2007 2008 you know there's cake shop that's happening the lower east side is still kind of a viable place uh pianos is around and then 2000 later 2008 places like death by audio start popping up and like silent barn becomes a thing and then at that point you you sort of know the rest like the mm -hmm. the DIY scene at that point is fairly well documented by many people, uh, thanks to places like Brooklyn Vegan and uh, Impose and stuff. So, but once those once those DIY venues started popping up and those live those live art spaces started popping up, that sh that shit was fun. And I don't want to be like back in my day, but like that's that stuff was great because mm -hmm. you see that you see the same the people who live there are working the doors, the people who work who live there are working the bars. And the it's all very loosey goosey, and is is all very generous to the to the bands that come because they were not all great. Let's be honest, and uh, to the people who would come see them because you know you want to see your friends do work, and you want to have see your friends do art, and you want to see your friends have fun. And so, how did you develop your style at that time? Like, how did you kind of not to give more tips to the swagjackers, but yeah. Um, well, it's like, what do you, what do you, what are your favorite music pictures? Me? I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to ask you that question. That's a really good question. Huh? Through, through all, through all music history. I feel like you're leading me here with this question. A little bit. I'm trying to. Um, so think, think about, uh, you know, the cover of London, London Calling. Mm -hmm. Sure. Think about uh, a movie. Think about Stop Making Sense. Think about the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. Think about uh, the picture of, you know, any, any picture of Van Halen. Right. And, and what you have, you have a proper stage and you have proper lighting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is, this is not a secret. Like one of the ways that you light black and white, movies is you light from the back forward so you once you once you have an edge light you define space and you can you can delineate foreground and background well what do all these diy spaces not have this is this is me just like giving it all away so what do what do diy spaces not have they don't have lights right. and you have no you have no way of delineating space and then so if you if you pop a flash on the front of your camera you're lighting from the front and it's very hard to delineate foreground and background and you have, um, then you get like just the, the flash blast. So what happens if you take the flashes, you put them behind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it all go, it's all downhill from that. Then it's, just, then it's just making math work. 
Right. So it was, again, it kind of goes back to that thing we were talking about before of dealing with a practical limitation and wanting a certain result and finding this workaround right. to get there. Right. Which, means, which, is, which means carry your own props, which is the same thing that all the musicians are doing anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Like the musicians are all carrying their, their amps in and their guitars in and their drums in, and I'm just carrying all my lights in because it's the same sort of, it's the same sort of uh, effect. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just I'm trying to do this work and I, wanna, I want it to be as good as it can be. And in order to do that, I'm going to work as hard as I can to do that. Did you ever have like a preference about what kind of bands or what kind of performers you like to photograph that was separate from just simply what performers you like to see live or what kind of music you particularly liked? Um, I think the, the bands, that's, that's, that's a real hard thing to quantify. And it really comes down to star power and a little bit of attitude. Cause I've seen, I've seen a lot of bad bands that had a great look and I made them look dope. Uh, as, because they look dope in the first place, and it's very, it's very easy to do that. And there are some bands where you'd you'd have four people on stage, you'd have guitar, bass, drum, you know, two guitar, bass, and drum, and it would just be kind of meh. And the songs might be really, really good, and I might have enjoyed their music very, very much, but they just look like shit. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of no no amount of my sort of finagling or addition of atmosphere can can remedy and i don't think it's for lack of care or that people were doing that like oh that's just all image man it's all about the music it's it's not like that it's just this real you gotta put on a little bit of a show and even if that show is that show is the chemistry between band members because if you if you're in a jam band and you're just like you're you're kind of talking and interacting with each other during the set and you're trying to make something happen and you're kind of walking around to each other and, and sort of communicating with each other in that way that bands do, like that can look very, very cool. Mm-hmm. But if you're just sort of standing there and, and playing to an audience that might not exist and might not be giving anything back to you, you, do, you have to have something and just being is not enough. You know, just being, just being there is really not enough sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's that's too bad, but um, and maybe a little shitty of me to say. Well, you're coming at it with a from a particular angle, so I, I think there's multiple truths that can coexist here. Yeah, and like you like you keep saying, like I'm trying to I'm trying to do one particular thing, and if if the thing you're doing doesn't really work inside my particular thing, then I can't really do anything with that either. Mm-hmm. You know. So it just it just doesn't work, and that's the, that's one of the things about art is sometimes sometimes you do a thing and it just it fails, it just falls flat on its face. Mm-hmm. It, to my understanding, you started filming live performances a bit later down the line. Do you see that as like part of the same like art form to you, or do you kind of view those as like distinct skills and distinct practices? Well, it, it came a little down, further down the line because I didn't have I didn't have a camera. Mm-hmm. You know, once DSLRs started started carrying, uh, started having started having movie functions, it became real easy to to sort of if you're if you're if you're bored one day to kind of flip over into doing a video. Those are those are more challenging because if you it goes back to what I was talking about before, where if if I'm in this venue with no light, then and how do I get how do I get a result that is satisfying? 
And those are, it, it was just, a, it's a lot harder and it's a lot more particular, you know, these videos are out there, like the Speedy Ortiz at Shea or Gradients at Shea or things like that. Who else? Florist at Silent Barn, I think, where it just, it just looks dark. And I, if I, if I watch those videos, I'm like, oh yeah, that's kind of what, that's kind of what the show was. And it sort of sounds pretty good. And that's what it sounded like. And then I go look at the stills. I'm like, no, that's what the show was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's, that's, that's what I saw in, in my mind. The still, the still is the actual show and the video is just sort of a weird little artifact that, you know, might, might or might not be listenable. Um, and then there are the pictures of, or the, sorry, there are the videos of, small wonder from uh noat's house up in the bronx where you know they're they're a bunch of hippies they're a bunch of fun punk hippies and they have like the christmas lights up and all this other jazz floating and and henry looks like a million bucks and that that is the show in that particular instance or those early bellows videos where like Felix is playing bass and you're on drums from that first tour remember that one? Oh, yeah, yeah um like those early bellows shows and like that is that is the thing, but the videos shooting the videos was just me sort of dicking around and saying what can I do what can I do to perhaps help these people that I like in in making another shitty art project and how how can I sort of see see if this is viable as a way to expand what I do or what I want to do at a at a concert. Um, to varying degrees, and these videos happen to varying degrees of success, mm -hmm. like anything else. And I, th I think part of that is because it's really, really hard in terms of manpower or person power to get a good board recording and to get a good video recording. Right, and also to do, both, to do both those sucks. It's so hard to do both those things at the same time. And it's all also contingent on whether the person performing is performing well and also looks video presentable in doing so. So there's a, yeah. lot, of, a lot of moving parts there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so there, there's so many moving parts. And the, and, the, and the sound systems at some of these places were like good enough for live, you know, Shea being the notable exception cause they, and Death by Audio too, because they, they just recorded all their shows. So everything has some has some sort of separation and polish that you you could theoretically go through and you know mix, mm -hmm. but um, you go into some of these smaller venues or some of these smaller bars um, or some of these house shows. It's just you're you're hearing everything direct off the amp, and it just sounds like shit. And as somebody who does sound for a living, to ear fatigue is extremely real. I think we all know that now with Zoom if you sit on a zoom meeting and somebody's like i am talking to you right now with no microphone it sounds like a drag and so and so you know never mind that my voice is sort of whack anyway but it just sounds it just sounds like a drag and and so there are a bunch of videos that just didn't pass the smell test and there are a bunch of videos that i should probably take down just because they aren't they aren't worth listening to not because they're embarrassing to the people involved or because i think that they shouldn't be seen per se it's just like who the fuck cares Right. It, even even at that point, you want to be presenting people in a way that is, you know, presentable. And Absolutely. Not like maybe not embarrassing for them, but also not like poisoning the well of people's experiences with their music if it sounds shitty. You know? I mean, there's enough shitty there's enough shitty band photography out there, and there's enough shitty music videos out there that I don't need to be adding to that. You know, right. I've already yeah, done yeah. I've already done that enough. I've already had I've already 
posted enough pictures where she's like, ah, oh, I, I feel like I need some validation. I'm going to throw something on Instagram today. It's like, no, that picture's whack. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. That joke sucks. Just take it down. Um, I, I was thinking, like, when you mentioned the, the videography as, like, a service to the musicians themselves, I was wondering about how you saw your role as a photographer in that sort of DIY 2.0 scene. Like, did you view yourself as, like, part of the media apparatus of like getting the word out about what was happening or did you did you think of yourself as like documenting it for posterity like was it both how do you kind of feel it's mostly it's mostly the it's mostly the latter i think Mm -hmm. there were there were a lot of bands you know people people would reach out to me and say could i put this on facebook and and you know i'd always have a form letter that i said that i would send it's like you have to put up this version you know you can't use it for promotional materials you can't or uh, for physical materials you can put it on your Facebook page, uh, on your Bandcamp. You can't send it to your press outlet. Your press person can't use it. And that's just because I wasn't getting paid. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I didn't want other people to get paid also, but also, like, there's there's enough ways for, for you to get images out there that don't involve stiffing your workers or, or to build a sort of a media presence that doesn't involve stiffing your workers. And, and that, that is evidence in the fact that every, every band has a pretty decent profile pick out. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody has a photographer, everybody's got a buddy. And if they don't have a buddy, then their, their buddies have a buddy and they'll, they'll find somebody to come take their picture. So I think it was mostly for, for my, you know, for my artistic fulfillment, if other people got kind of a buzz out of it. Um, and I mean that in it's just sort of a thrill way, not in, in a, in a buzz machine kind of way, then that was awesome and i felt very happy to have been a you know a side little side part of that but i don't think i really wanted to be a part of the media apparatus per se and i I sent enough nasty letters to people to tell them to take my pictures down because they weren't allowed to they weren't allowed to scrape them like they you know i'd I'd chew out impos Mm -hmm. i don't mind telling you that i I chewed i chewed out who were those who were those who was like stereo gums shithead fucking side thing is like go music or something like that i'm trying to remember they had some sort of web presence where it was just like i get a chubby from live bands come come to dick bar on tuesday and see this and they'd like scrape your picture off somebody's facebook and they put it up and i'd be like take it the fuck down dude mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they'd be like oh it's on facebook it's for it's fair use I'm like no it's not it's clearly not um and like I, I had to chew out people who were like 60 years old and like I, I Google them I'm like, who the fuck is this dude? And it would just be some pud who like has a legit history in publishing. Like I can look at their, their LinkedIn or whatever and they have publishing credits all the way back to the eighties. I'm like, you, you know what the fuck fair use is. Mm-hmm. You know what copyright is and you know that you're, you've done fucked it up. So I'm going to fucking sit here and yell at you, a 60 year old man, like you're a goddamn child. Is it just like the new media aspect of it? Absolutely. Like it? 100%. Yeah. And, and young media too. And, you know, people like I'm giving impose kind of a hard time right now, but the, cause I like, there were some great people who wrote for impose and contributed to impose, but, and they've all gone on to do better things, but it's just, you get people who are, who are 22 and just are real high on the act of doing something. And, and there are certain channels that you need to go through or certain permissions that you have to ask before you can use people's artwork. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that is one thing I will say that I, I want in particular with me is I, I have no problem calling myself an artist first and a journalist 
way, way, way down the line. I think part of the, part of the thing that comes with my, the way I would, the way I observed a music show, the way I observe a music show or choose to add lighting to a, to a music show alters the experience so fundamentally that it is no longer journalism. And, and I've, and I, I had a lot of like talks with myself about this. Like this isn't, this isn't journalism, dude. You're not, you're not just showing up and experiencing something and trying to, trying to make art out of a, out of a black box. You're fundamental. This is a true observer effect. And so you can't call yourself a journalist. And even now doing like nature and stuff, like I'll go through and I'll mess with the, mess with the, the print such that like, it's no longer journalism. It's no longer nature photography. And I think that I sort of disqualify myself from certain things like the Audubon photography awards and stuff like that, just because my background in editing pictures and screwing with pictures is so significant that like no one would believe me if I told you it was true. I don't remember who said it, but like this kind of builds on something that you said earlier about the, the photographs that you took of live music in particular, people would comment that it was like what it felt like to be at the show and not what the show actually looked like. Yeah. It's like a, almost like a dramatization of the experience of being at a DIY show. Yeah. How did you settle? Like, why did you decide to take that more artistic approach? Did you ever want to go more of the journalistic route or was that just a no go from the start? Um, it's kind of a no go from the start. Like j- journalistic ethics are, are so particular and specific and, and like so justified that, I didn't, you know, that's a, that's a lifestyle that, and a, and a, and a skill that I didn't want to cultivate. I would much rather be up my own ass to be perfectly frank and, and sort of project my, project my desires onto the, onto the event. The interaction of like the audience in the shots is something that I was thinking about a lot of like, a lot of the times you're shooting just the band itself and the audience is kind of implied, but not necessarily explicitly there. And then there are other shots, of course, like Mighty Handful shows or something like that, where everyone's careening off of the crowd and whatnot. How did you think of the audience that was present with you at the shows and how did they factor into your work? Uh, like in, in real terms? Uh, or just like in, in artistic terms? In artistic terms, and then maybe we can discuss the practical angle too, if necessary. I, I always wanted the crowd to be... I always wanted the crowd to be in the shot, mm-hmm. but that that really depends on the band. Like you, you have a sit down band, nobody's going to be banging into each other. And there's not that, that audience and performer interaction is different. And if it's a sparsely attended Tuesday noise show at death by audio, and Lord knows I went to enough of those where there's only 10 people in the audience, like you, you're just not going to get that. And so you have to, you just have to work with the band itself and then you get so-so gloves or, or, you know, the mighty handful. And it's just, you know, it's like, a, it's like gas in a jar. It's just, it's so tight and so ready, ready to explode. And if somebody starts bumping into you, then you just got to roll with it and you mm-hmm. have to, you have to celebrate that. And the more anthemic the band, the the more crowd there was, it just happened. And I think another thing, you know, there, this, this is, this is one of those like early sort of bold or bold observation, you know, bold observations from a bold human kind of thing. It's like, I, I thought that once your beer went over five bucks, you stopped dancing. 
Because <laughs> you don't want to spill it. Right. Seven bucks is a lot of money. You can buy a lot of coffee for seven bucks. You know, seven bucks is half of a cab ride home. So, as soon as as soon as the beer goes under goes over five bucks, seven bucks, you stop dancing. So the older the older the band, or the more accomplished the band, even because you start going to places like Bowery Ballroom or Irving, then people just aren't slamming into each other anymore, and there becomes more security and more barriers for entry and more more ways that you're you know supposed to act in scare quotes at a live venue and in public and so the audience the audience participation goes way way down mm-hmm. and so and then in real terms in real terms the audiences were were pretty uniformly great i can count on one or two hands one or like one or two times off the top of my head where somebody was just a real d-bag and and was being real shitty and and one of them was just so particular. I was it was at a Shea show, and this person whom, whom I don't I do not know, and I couldn't tell you who it is. They must have thought like I was a party photographer or something, because they and there I'm shooting the band, and it's a real real fun happening band, and it was real sweaty, and it's great, and summer's here, and everybody's beautiful. And then this guy like taps me on the shoulder, and he's like, "Hey," and I'm like, "Hey, what's up?" And he like takes my takes like his friend and he puts his arm around his shoulder and he and he does like the, I'm gonna do this this is gonna this is radio right <laughs> and he does this you know and let the record show that I made the du jour like it's such a good face face <laughs> and I'm just like fuck no dog get the hell out of here I don't know I'm not doing this I got yours mm-hmm. and so that you know that's just some bad bad vibe shit like you you don't know me <laughs> I'm, right. not gonna, I'm, not give, I'm not gonna give you this picture you're not gonna you're not gonna end up on driven by boredom or anything like that what the fuck are you doing you know who i am i'm not that it's interesting because i feel like over the course of that answer i could sort of chart these gradual changes in the diy scene from the like the tuesday noise show at death by audio to like obviously the bands getting bigger and play the bands that you were you know in the same sort of social circle with getting bigger and playing stuff like Bowery and of course the infiltration of the sort of bro zone bro zone yeah into the it uh, happened it was happening there near the end Mm -hmm. I mean one of the things this is this is a story like when when Death by Audio was closing you know I I was going there was like a month's worth of shows or two weeks worth of shows where they just like had a secret headliner the entire time Mm -hmm. And I was going to all these because I was like, shit, Death by Audio is closing. This is such a drag. I feel so bad. But this is so much fun. And it got to the it got to the end. And it started getting picked up in like Gotham lists and stuff like that. Like Death by Audio is closing, Death by Audio is closing. And like all these fucking people started showing up they'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. And so I think, and so definitely the last show I went to at Death by Audio was not the uh, Place to Very Strangers last show. One, because I didn't want to deal with it, but also like the, the, the actual last Death by Audio show I went to was the Fiasco Lay Rug show. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, wow, like these are, these are my people. This is what, it, these are the bands I came to see. These are my friends. And what if that's it? Like what if, what if I don't need to see the venues, like the, the closing of Death by Audio through to the real conclusion because my conclusion is here. This is where I'm choosing to end this particular story with people that I care about doing good work at a fun show and it's super crowded and everybody's very enthusiastic, but it's not too crowded and um, everybody feels good. 
and I can walk away from that. And then, and then like, I, you know, I, I saw the recap of the last show death by audio and, you know, there are pictures out there of all that, but the lines are on like around the fucking block mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to go into this venue where, where Eden was only going to let in people that he knew, like the death by audio kids were only going to let in people that they knew. Like who the fuck are all these people? Those tourists. Better question is where were they before? You know, like, where were they before? Like they and they might have come here once or twice. You know, might have gone there once or twice and just been had a great time. And they wanted to like have legit reasons to go. But I bet you, the, I bet you they weren't. They're just trying to be seen. Because mm-hmm. if they if they if they had any sort of real attachment to the venue, then they would have been in. I noticed on your website that there's a little section unto itself for the final Shea Stadium show. Yeah. Why mark that distinctly on the website? Yeah, the closing of Shea was tough. The um, well, they they had planned to do sort of a similar thing with that Death by Audio did, where they would like really mark down the calendar days. They called you know they they called it a shiva, mm-hmm. and um, and then they still got shut down by the landlords and you know by the dob or vice squad or whatever the hell it was, and then they had the the one sort of semi-secret last show where it was just like true believers. And, and, you know, I, I went cause I actually wanted to go to that one and I knew that it was more or less unannounced and that it would be the, the death by audio experience that I, that I had in a true punctuation moment. And um, of course, Fletch is gone now. So it has that sort of extra layer to me these days. But uh, I just think, I think I was really on that day. You know, like you have, you have a good music show or you have a good interview or you just have a good day at work or you have a great weekend with your partner or with your friends and you're just like, shit, that was a great day. Mm-hmm. Like I really, I really had it all together and I was present and I felt, I felt, I felt like everything was happening all together at once this is the like mystical part of art that i actually sort of hate it's like kind of hooey gooey and like how do you explain something like this without sounding like a dope but it's just it, it just i felt like that was a very true ex- true experience being documented from open to close mm-hmm. and of course the, the, the whole party went on long after i left but to a certain extent, that, that might be sort of like the the end of that particular phase of my concert shooting. Mm-hmm. It feels also like the end of a particular phase of New York DIY in its own way. And maybe that's my own generational bias speaking. Mm-hmm. But I was curious just from your sort of perspective of having some slight degree of remove from playing on the stages and maybe having the because I think being involved in the music scene on the music side, can, you can maybe get in your own head about exactly how important or what's interesting or what is actually happening during that stretch of time. Mm-hmm. But I, I was curious about how you saw things change from that sort of moment that you described earlier in this conversation where everything clicked together to the point where you sort of pieced out from concert photography as your, your primary form of expression. Well, a lot of the venues closed and the ones that stuck around, like they, they just felt like dominoes after that. Right. Help me through, help me through this timeline a little bit. Like Silent Barnum was gone maybe six months later. 
mm-hmm. something to that effect. And it, it, that went away unceremoniously. That just, just disappeared. And there were places like the glove that were kind of poking around sort of as the, the like, you can't get a show at Shea, but the glove will take you kind of thing. And, you know, the glove is gone now too. But I remember, I was like, oh, like, my friend's band, they're going to play the glove. That's cool. I haven't, I haven't really been there yet. Why don't I go? Like, I'll put my bag together. I'll get on the bus. I'll get a couple of shitty slices of pizza because that was sort of my ritual. And I'd throw 30 bucks in my pocket, and then I would go to the glove to go see this band, and doors are at 8. That's wonderful. Doors are at 8, and I will get the lay of the land, and I'll surely be the first one there, and maybe my friends will be there loading in, and I get there at 8 o'clock, and uh, there's nobody there. I say, all right. And so I kind of walk upstairs and I say, hello, the glove. Is anybody here? And they're like, oh, man, yeah. Can you come back at around like 9.30? We're not ready yet. And I'm just like, what the fuck did you just say to me? Like, it says 8 o'clock on the goddamn Facebook event. Like, what? Are you fucking serious? And so I just went home. Because like, I'm just, I'm just not going to hang around God knows where for an hour and a half or to leave and then come back. It's just fucking stupid. And I think one of the things that was really neat about New York DIY 2.0 is even at its sort of most useless um, at its most Tuesday night, there was, there's a level, level of professionalism. Like the show, the show says doors at eight, the doors will be open at around eight ish. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll, they'll be within 15 minutes. What time will the first band start? It'll always be punk time, but it'll always be around nine, you know? And what time will the last band go end? Yeah, around 1145, 12 o'clock, 1215, somewhere in there. And you could, you could really set your watch to it. And I thought that was very, that's very cool in retrospect that for 10, 10, 12 years or so, everybody had a pretty good schedule and had a pretty good idea of responsibility to the showgoer and to the bands and to, to the communities too. Cause you're not fucking playing a band. You're not playing live music at two in the morning. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Cause I, I feel like there's this tension between being professional and the way that a lot of, like, I think that you're right. It's good for venues to be punctual and timely and to have like a smooth, well-running ship. Yeah. Punk, punk time sucks. Punk time is I'm, I've always been more on the prog time Yes, <laughs> on that spectrum. Yes. But at the same time, like on the music side of things, I do feel like there was also this gradual swing over the course of that time towards a certain kind of unearned professionalism in the music, if that makes sense. How so? Uh, just that I, I feel like there was a, a broader careerism that mm. was kind of gliding upwards in in a lot of DIY stuff. At least this was my impression of it. I may be wrong. You're you have a bit more boots on the ground, so you may see things a bit differently. But um, I think near the end, I mean, the, near the end there, and let's just take like the end of Silent Barn Two as sort of the that particular end of the era i would see your point of view and would describe it as a lot of bands seem to have publicists all of a sudden mm-hmm. right yeah that's kind um, of what i mean in a way that i 
I would certainly not make any judgments about. I think if you can afford to have a publicist or a publicist is interested in representing you as, a, as an artist or a musician, I think you sort of um, have to take that, uh, especially if there's no money up front and it's just, you know, that person is bird-dogging your gigs or booking your tours for a percentage. Like that, that seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to want to do. Yeah, I think, I guess so. Is, is my is my really lousy answer to that question? Um, I think that that feels right, and I I wonder though if that there was just a really specific set of bands that all kind of got big at the same time, and that's just that's just luck. Yeah, that's kind of that's generally the zone that I'm referring to. Is I feel like there was this late uh, after 2014 or so. 2014, yeah, yeah, kind of sense of a bunch of bands really sort of hitting the going for it gas very quickly yeah um, while still operating in what could be like identified as diy from its aesthetics and from the sort of culture that it is that it existed in if that makes sense one of the one of the things that you're observing with regards to that is everybody came back from college Um, and so you had all these people who left as teenagers and came back as early 20 somethings still had no jobs cause you're in the middle of whatever the hell recession you're in at that point. And, um, you have nothing else to do. So you may as well be in a band mm-hmm. and you have a couple of years of experience of sort of screwing around in college with your, with your cool band and you would tour back to New York and all your friends would see you and say, wow, your band is really good. And you'd go away for another six months and you'd come back during the summer and I think that there was just a, a happy, a happy confluence of age, experience, and fearlessness, and this abundance of venues to play in, so that you could you could circle through. You could circle through New York, to a certain extent, and through up to Connecticut and Boston, and down to Philly and D.C. You could play the Northeast Corridor, and do these little tours, and all of a sudden you have you know, a hundred people in each town who sort of know who you are. Um, and I think, you, I think the real people to ask about this is the people who are still doing it. But, um, but I, I sort of observed that when people came back from college, they were just four years older, were four years better musicians, right? Had four years worth of better gear and had nowhere to put any of their energy and all their jobs sucked. So why wouldn't you be in a band? That sounds dope. Right. And why would you not maybe take that as seriously as you could? As, as seriously as you possibly could. And when you, dem- when, when as an artist, when as an artist, you demonstrate seriousness, then people who have, have the desire to either make money with you or off of you will, will manifest. And I don't mean that to disparage people who are publicists um, because you, you, they are capable of doing a very important job, which is to just keep, keep the ball moving mm-hmm. um, if the artist desires it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I say this, I have, I'm in this conversation as someone that has hired a publicist myself. So yeah, um, you know, the blood is on my hands as well. No, I think, I think, I think that, the, that there's, there's a reason you outsource these, these things to a certain degree because handing out show flyers on the corner sucks. Mm-hmm. And what if you could pay somebody a, a modest percentage to make a 15 minute phone call and see what is available for you in August? in boston i do want to briefly ask about the nature photography stuff as well why 
uh, you know, you mentioned that you sort of have slipped over into that as maybe your, your primary workaday version of photography. How did that come about? Yeah, the, the bird, the birding, the birding is kind of a hoot. It's just something it is, it is absolutely the opposite of going to a show in that one could argue that doing show photography, I'm trying to force my vision of this one limited experience to, to force my vision onto this one limited experience. And the uh, people that I'm photog- photographing are, are sort of dolls for me to move around and play with in my head. Animals don't let you do that. So, so <laughs> animal doesn't care. Honey badger does not give a fuck. Uh, so to, to chase these birds around, they're, they're, they have their own minds, they have their own desires, and they have their own seasons, and um, they, they literally want nothing to do with you because you're a giant thing sort of lumbering through their house. So to, to go birding is much harder it's much less focused you are a slave to nature and it's just it's just the opposite of of show photography in many ways uh, and it came to me it just it didn't really come to me per se it's just that uh my wife back when we were still merely dating we went to letchworth which is in western new york and i didn't i didn't really know this about her i didn't know that she like wanted to go out and sort of be in the woods and go on hikes and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, wow, this is something I didn't know that I also needed in my experience. And so to go out on hikes and stuff is, is, to, is to be together as a couple and is to get something that I don't get in the city at all, uh, look around you. And so with that comes the sort of the satellite desire to observe something and there are birds everywhere. And uh, you can do it everywhere. You can do it in the streets of New York. There's the spring, mig- spring migration is going on right now. And it's just a way to synthesize how I view the world again. And it just so happens this, this little object, this little creature gives, gives me something to stare at. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's pretty and people like it. I was going to ask, what is the biggest similarity between photographing a bird and photographing a band? One of the things that I... Do you remember, you remember Fun Danger? Um, that's the one. zine that you put out? Yeah, the, black, years and, the back? black and white one. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I remember working on that and I'm staring at this, I'm staring at this body of work up to that point. I'm just like, well, what the hell is this? Like, what am I interested in? Because when you put something together like that, where you're trying to, you're trying to condense um, a body of work into something that makes sense in a, in a smaller scale, I'm looking at these pictures. I'm like, well, what do I, what do I see? What am I actually seeing? And what am I responding to? And one of the things I thought is that I'm responding to the tension between intimacy and expanse. So you you, you have the gaze of the singer looking at their friend in the audience or somebody in the audience. And, and you have the, the gaze of the audience going back at them. And you have this very intimate moment but you also have all this other stuff going on around it. And so how do you, how do you convey this? Mm-hmm. And I think with, 
nature photography and bird photography, you have a similar sort of thing where you have, you have this tension between the world, the, the literal world, and this tiny little thing, or sometimes a big thing, depending on you know, what it is. But you have this tiny little thing that's just trying to exist in this gigantic space. And what is it interact? What is that little object interacting with? Is it a tree branch? Is it the air? Is it the water? Is it another bird? Um, is it the dog down the street that's giving it a hard time? And there's a sort of there's a sort of ecstasy in it that that, you, that I'm trying to find. And it doesn't it doesn't always work. Sometimes it becomes very static. Like you can try and find this. You know, you call it a decisive moment if you want, but you're trying to find this, this, find this tension and convey this tension, and and like I said before, just in this particular instance, the bird has no interest in this. So the the tension between intimacy and expanse is something that I respond to, and I think that that is my that is my immediate similarity between these two things. So before we wrap up, I would like to talk a bit about the music video. Sure. So yeah, I, uh, you know, we just dropped this music video on yeah. Friday. My music video is dropping, is dropping. And, you know, I was curious about not to make too much of a big deal of the generation gap, but you mentioned MTV. And <laughs> I, I think like by the time that I was of music video watching age, they were not on MTV anymore, really, yeah. in the same way. And I was curious about like your perspective on the music video as a form coming up at a slightly different time where that, that medium maybe meant something a bit different. Yeah, so, okay, this is a great question. So I, I remember the early days of MTV sort of weirdly well mm -hmm. um, in that it was sort of taboo, which is, which is ridiculous to think back on now um, because when MTV happened, like Madonna wasn't even a thing yet or not in the way that, not in the way that she became, like not in the, in the, uh, like a prayer, like burning crosses way. The videos were all very square. So I remember, I remember my dad seeing the video for Finding Uncannibals, uh, She Drives Me Crazy. And in it, there's a guy in a, in a boiler suit or a jumpsuit or something. And he has a, he has a big TV on his head, like an old analog CRT TV on his head. And my dad thinking that's very cool. And my dad is my dad when I'm, you know, eight years old or whatever, and like big square dad. And um, the fact that he thought that was very cool was was sort of impressed upon me. It's like, yeah, it is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. And so you grow up as the MTV generation and, you know, you go through all the, the whole spectrum of sort of Midwest scandal that comes along with MTV and Prince and Madonna and Michael, Michael Jackson even. And all these people you think of as just being terribly, terribly square at this point. And the videos become more and more sophisticated. And I just think that the, they really started leaning into the cinematicness of it. Mm -hmm. The people who made music videos, like Victoria Sigismondi and um, a bunch of other directors that I'm just not going to remember off the top of my head. We're talking about like Fincher, Bay. Yeah, that whole, it, that even, yeah and, and like the sort of the late 90s versions of that the grunge era stuff mm. the mid to late 90s where everything is cross-processed and blown out and it, it just looks kind of spacey but like music, music videos are always are just sort of always there 
and they've come to be sort of expected from artists to a certain degree and they can vary in scope and scale so video yeah music videos are music videos can be super cool it just so happens there are a lot of bad music videos out there and with the expectation of an artist to make a music video means that there's a certain pressure i think on the part of the artist to make something that is just just to make something make anything it doesn't matter and the uh the distribution for music videos is such that it is youtube or vimeo or what have you or direct release to your fans on your website uh, or you know netflix in the case of taylor swift so the sort of i think the specialness of music videos has kind of gone away a little bit because it's just expected and even people that i love like double double whammy like they'll, they'll put out music videos and there are certain there are certain videos where it's just like the singer singing still and or walking down the street and singing and i just think that's i just don't think that's terribly interesting um, right. so it has to, it has to do something beyond just the song itself. Right. Yeah. So it seems to me like that would be, you could speculate that you have that particular interest in the more high concept or cinematic version of the music video, maybe because that's what you have some, a bit more exposure to yeah. during the early years of the form. Yeah. And exactly. And sort of the, one of the things like working in sketch comedy these days, like, you know, one of, one of my, I work in, I work for a, a daily sketch show sometimes and they, how, how little time you need to tell a story mm-hmm. or to tell a gag before you have to move on to the next gag or the next part of the story. Like if you have a 10 minute song and you have a 10 minute music video, that video really has to do a lot of work in order to, in order to maintain your interest for that amount of time. Mm-hmm. And so to a certain degree, I think, I think music videos work best at shorter songs because you can have one really good tight idea and really ride that idea as hard as you possibly can. And you're out before the audience gets tired of it. That is the one holdover regardless of the era of music video. That is true. I think about. Absolutely. Like. Because I, I think there was this perception that the music video as a useful promotional tool kind of had, was on its last legs by the time of the 2000s, just because the it wasn't quite yet at the point where things were able to go viral on the internet. And, but it was at the point where maybe people weren't watching as many music videos on television. So there's this kind of nebulous era. And then once I remember this band Red Fang had... Uh-huh this absolutely brilliant, stupid idea for a music video where they, it's like a metal band and they all like, they see some LARPers out in the, in like a park and decide to like troll them by making themselves armor and weapons made out of beer cans to fight the LARPers. Uh-huh. And it's like, Oh, that's an instantly that's, memorable image. That's dope. That's so cool. And it was like one of the first examples of like a band kind of, or like a metal band specifically going viral for a music video in like 2008. Yeah. And so I think there's kind of been this ret- this cyclical thing where music videos have come back around of now that video technology is so much more advanced on the internet. Um, and of course, like TikTok is its whole other universe and like the skills that these TikTok doesn't TikTok doesn't exist to me. I, it's just, it's just Vine. I don't even know what the hell it is. Um, it's Vine with significantly more advanced editing technology. There we go. Um, these people should just make films. 
I think it's, a lot of be, it would be fab. It'd be fabulous. Just make films, kids. <laughs> Please stop wasting your time on somebody else's platform. But the the point I'm sort of getting at is, I feel like ultimately the music video has come back into a certain degree of prominence or uh, importance for an artist to have. Maybe it's still perfunctory, and I certainly agree that you shouldn't make a music video if you don't know why and what you're making in it. But there seems to be a lot more uh, hunger and interest in someone who does put in the work of making an interesting and memorable image now and there's platforms for that sort of thing to to be viewed again yeah i wonder because i think let's talk let's talk about our our little project here sure the the seed of this was yours all the way through um like and i think the what i what i brought to this apart from the, the technical side of it is sort of with your help also, because you know, you're, you're a producer on this essentially is to how can, how can we take this, how can we take this notion that you have and do two things? One is make it practical for COVID, mm-hmm. you know, cause we, we didn't, we didn't have vaccines at this point. And, and I, you know, I'm a freelance worker uh, if I go down with COVID, I'm up shit creek. You work from home. You have a different sort of circum- set of circumstances. Um, and Cammy too. I wish Cammy was here for this. I must, I must, must, must give all all praise to the Almighty Cammy Upton for this. But like, how do we how do we make this idea work for COVID? Because you you originally had more people in it, and I said, eh, what if we didn't? And so we started distilling this notion that you had to its barest parts. Mm-hmm. And then we started building it back up again, which is how some of the, the visual language came into play in the film. Well, the core thing is that the idea was there at the start and remained there the entire time. Yeah, it was a good idea. And that, that's, like, that is, that's my whole attitude about music videos. It's like, regardless of budget or uh, skills or technology, if you have a really good idea and just go straight at that idea as hard as you can, I think you'll probably yeah. end up with something really good. Yeah. So you had a good. You, so you had a good idea, and 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 I and I and you and Cami, we all just sort of started pulling in the same direction at that point. Mm-hmm. And my big concern was COVID, and then my second concern was like, how do we solve the problem of this scale, in with our budget, which was uh, zero dollars, and or like you know a, a token. A token cost like i don't know i don't know cammy's rates on this but you know maybe we don't have to discuss that but the you know we were doing we we're doing stuff for cost mm-hmm. basically so a good idea a good idea will take you a long way to your point though i think like the way in which the thing that i kind of walked away from the, the whole experience um with was the sense of how much a good idea can be improved by working with people who believe in that idea or are excited by it mm-hmm. and then have the ability to change the idea uh, over time. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you, you also, you were on board with these changes right away too. I didn't have to like twist your arm or anything like this. I think, I think, I think the idea that we, that we went into this, we went into this as equally trying to solve, solve the problem presented by this idea. Cause like all, all assignments are just problems, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you're given, you're given a series of tasks to do at work. It's, it's a problem that you're trying to solve and you're trying to arrive at a conclusion at the end of the day. 
Well, I, I think part of my attitude coming in was also, you know, the it's a music video for us, a remix of a song on the original record. And mm -hmm. what I, so much of what I wanted out of this album was the sense of an idea having been transformed by its interaction with another creator. Yeah. And so a lot of my philosophy for this particular video was to just kind of like to put in the, in the dumbest terms possible is just yes. And our way through it, you know? Yeah. That's what we did basically. Yeah. And if we couldn't, yes. And we would know, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> however, um, no, that's exactly what happened. Uh, and I think one of the things that was sort of challenging for me, and this is, this is, uh, you know, this, this was my, this is just a project we did during COVID. And so it had, it had the safety issue involved is that we were doing all of our sort of note sessions remotely. And so I would do a cut and there would just be like scene missing for 30 seconds. And then I was, I would just update it slowly and slowly and slowly. And you were, you were on that and you gave me notes and I sent it to Cammy because I wanted Cammy to give me notes. And I, I cause I want to honor her work too on that. Cause she did such a tremendous job and you know, I wanted her notes on the day when, when we were shooting and I wanted her notes on in the in the edit because i wanted to put her work forward mm -hmm. in the best possible light and she gave you know she gave me good editing notes and, and i would sit there and i'd look at them and i'd say you know really and i we just sort of think to myself i take a walk around the block and then i would just come back and do do the note change and i take another walk around the block and then i'd watch it and i'd be like oh that's she, she's right you know or ian's right because there was some there was uh, this is not speaking out of class. Like there was, there was some like scaling stuff just in terms of moving images around in sequence in order to, to mesh, to mesh the video better. And I was sort of resistant to it, not on a, not on an ego level, but because I, I just, I felt like the cut would be, I felt like making these alterations would be dishonest in a way that is, that is not literal, but in the, just sort of in the language of the video that I'm working in uh, would be dishonest, but she was, she was right. So, you know, it's either here or there. Right. Yeah. I think of like the removal of a certain degree of um, expectation of what honesty even is, is kind of like a very freeing part of this sort of collaborative process. Like we actually don't know what it will be until it is what it is, which is yeah. maybe like a very woo woo way of. No, it's, it's, it. a, it's the solvent. It's the solvent in the cut problem that, yeah. happen, that happens in comedy or in, in, in drama even where it's just, you're trying to just get everything on the day. And then once you start to get into the editing suite, then you'll just solve it because you, you will have to, because you mm -hmm. don't have anything else to work with. <laughs> you know <laughs> luckily i think like we had the constraint of having really really good makeup for the video and yeah. that kind of forces your hands to to make a lot of editing choices and performance choices to highlight that work you know yeah and to a certain degree to a certain degree that was very like directorial 101 like we didn't we didn't see these things i don't think this is talking in a class either but we didn't see these things on your face until the day mm -hmm. and so you while you might have had a life mask made and you and Cammy might have been communicating about what these characters look like, you know, we didn't we didn't rehearse them. And right. so and so once you once you got in the makeup chair and once you had these things put on your face and we get you in front of camera, it's 
we three would just sit there and say, all right, well, what does this guy do? Which is a very like director 101 kind of like actor 101, director 101 kind of relationship. It's like, well, what is, what does this character do for you? And, you know, for the most part, our, our instincts were right. There were a couple, there was at least one time where we thought, well, this, this character is one thing. And then you started performing and we're just like, no, 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 that's not it. That's not it. And then we, it, it became what became in the fun, what it became in the final video. And, um, and in retrospect, the, the conclusion that we arrived at is obvious. We should have seen that in the first place, but we didn't. So that, but that's just, that's just work. Yeah. Just working in the studio. Totally. Um, that pretty much covers it for me. Is there anything other sort of director's notes that you'd like to leave people with for this video? No, the video is the video's exciting because I think it was it was unexpected, certainly. Like, I didn't expect you to call me and say, like, hey, can we do a music video? This is the idea. And it was just something that wasn't on my production radar. And I haven't really done anything like that since uh, Bellows, What Can I Tell You? Well, that was definitely the experience that like led me to believe that we could do it was working on that music video with you and seeing the level of production that we had to pull that together. We could, we could rest it. Like I, I was talking to Oliver about what can I tell you the other day? And I was like, I don't remember that process at all. I remember, I remember working on it on the day. I don't remember where the idea came from necessarily. I think it, I think it might've been mine, but I, I, I had a different, I had a different like path that that video was supposed to take. And then I got there on set and I was like, well, this isn't right at all. And I just like 180 the entire thing. And Oliver thinks, and I, I have no reason to doubt him, that the that the the lighting changes, the idea of having lighting changes in the first place was Henry's. And I, I don't I don't doubt that. And I think it was just then a matter of choreographing that motion. But that's like a super talk about a video that has like one idea. You know, that, that song is two, 243, I think. And that's, that's a real tight 243. Right. Yeah. But I'm like seeing that experience and taking part in it kind of was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it with people that I know and people that I trust. And yeah, if you have that, like if I just sort of dive into it and not be like afraid of fucking it up and just like make the thing, I feel like getting the people that are most down to just like work hard at to it. fuck up and make yeah. the thing. Right. <laughs> extremely, exactly. extremely important. Um, maybe that's, maybe that's the takeaway. Yeah. The takeaway advice for this, or, you know, that's, that's an old, that's an old, uh, like documentary segment, uh, thing is you, you're interviewing somebody about what they know. You say like, what's the, t- what's the takeaway? What's the, what's the nugget that the viewer can take? And in this case, what's, what's the thing that the, listener can take and the answer is the same one that you always hear is like find your friends that want to jump in the lake with you and jump in the lake as often as possible not everybody has people in in our particular instance like i'm I'm much older than you and not everybody has somebody who's older than them who's willing to just be a computer jockey for two weeks and like cut the thing and then also like shoot it and do playback and do all this other stuff but that doesn't mean that you can't sit around with your buddies and come up with a good idea and, and write it, write it as hard as you can. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Richard, for jumping back into the lake with me for this particular podcast. <laughs> this has been great. Good. Thank you. To you. It's great talking. And I'll see you in person soon. Now that we've had our shots. Absolutely. Catch you shots. Later.
Thank you again for listening, and thank you, Richard, for joining me. You can find Richard Jin's website, richardjin.org, in the description for this episode, as well as the link to the music video that we made together for Hypothermia. If you'd like to get in contact with me, you can email me at landreformsband at gmail.com. If you liked this episode, please give it a good rating and review, or send it to a friend that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening. More episodes coming soon. Until next time.